Well, again, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn it to Acts in chapter 9 of this book. We will pick up where we left off the last time we met together. Acts chapter 9 has this amazing encounter with the Son of God speaking directly to a man named Saul. The Son of God appeared in such a way to Saul that it blinded him, stopped him dead in his tracks, and in God's kindness, he not only showed up in Saul's life, but convicted him and regenerated him and saved him. We saw in God's word that God in his kindness and in his mercy saved Saul. Now, this isn't unfamiliar to us in God's word. God is continually saving people as he's encountering them. But what makes this so staggering and what stopped us dead in our tracks when we read this passage last week was that Saul was basically just the worst person in the world. I mean, this man had spent his life attacking Christians, brutalizing people who he found blasphemous against the one and true God. But God turned this man, this persecutor, into, amazingly, a preacher and a prophet to people who he had once been aiming to crucify. Saul was converted triumphantly, we saw. And then here we'll see this morning that he not only was saved, but that he responds with a life that was true to the Lord's will for him. But amazingly, he not only turned, but he started proclaiming that Jesus, the one who he had been persecuting, the one who had shown up in his life, this Jesus was the son of God who he was going to testify about and proclaim to the ends of the earth. The heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of this redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Those words from Charles Spurgeon both helps us kind of classify what we're seeing here where the essence of redemption is Christ showing up. But not just showing up, but that Christ gave himself over as a substitute for sinners. So this morning in our passage, we will see as we've been seeing as the book of Acts has unfolded to us that the acts of the risen Lord are being stretched out like never before. But now they're going to be stretched out through Saul, once a persecutor, now a preacher. We see the mighty acts of the Lord go out as he promised, like he said he would do to reach the end of the earth. And I think we're going to see three highlights or three important things in this passage. We're going to see that Saul's impact is going to grow as he's preaching the gospel. We're going to see Saul's influence grows, not just his impact growing deeper, but his influence growing broader. And then we're going to see The climax of all of that is that the church is going to regain peace in their time. So if you are following along with an outline, we now approach the first point where we see in verse 19 through 25, Saul's impact grew in this text. Saul's impact grows. And when I say that Saul's impact grows, I mean that his almost heavenly majestic work is growing deeper and deeper as he's building up this case that he is a preacher. And we can see that through Saul keeping his tenacity. You know, one of the cool things about Saul is that he's this 
firebrand of a preacher. He's this guy who is unrelenting in whatever he talks about. He was the same way when he was a non-Christian where he was going after with this relentless, breathing, murderous thoughts against Christ's people. But now he keeps that same mentality and that same tenacity as he is now approaching the kingdom of God with those same feelings, but now with a different heart and different words. Verse 19, it says, in the middle of 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Immediately, Saul takes action. He was converted and then was baptized and then ate and then hung around with these disciples, and immediately he could do nothing else but just proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. His passion never ceased and that allows his impact to grow deeper and deeper. And we can see this through him just debating with people around him, him him conversing about who Jesus was as the son of God. He grew, the text says, in strength as he was doing this. Like, Like the practice of rehearsing the gospel to people who are against the gospel actually made him stronger. It didn't beat him down. As his impact was growing, his strength was increasing. We see kind of a An amazing example of apologetics where he was seeking people out first in the synagogues and meeting them where they are. But not just meeting them where they are, but teaching them what the gospel is and what the scriptures say. There was no sense of complacency in Saul's life. It makes him such an encouragement for us. We would imagine that this is the guy that wakes up at 4 a.m. and goes to bed at like 11 p.m. and doesn't do anything all day except not only bring glory to God, but also just telling people about it. His impact and his fervency and his passion and his tendency continue to grow. Once this unfixable vessel is now a chosen instrument of God, but he doesn't just talk about himself when he does this. I mean, you would imagine that just the, just the testimony of this man, now maybe one or two days old, how the, the amazing things that he could tell about his own life, the, the thing that he wanted to tell most is that Jesus, the man who he had once persecuted, Jesus is the Son of God. He has no, nothing else on the end of his mouth. We see Saul's impact grew just through his tenacity with the word. But we not only see his impact grow through his tenacity, but we, th- we see his impact grow in just that he is a mobile person in the kingdom of God. If you're familiar with uh, Saul, who later became known as Paul to the Greeks and everyone who he talked to, he later wrote in letters that once he became converted, he didn't just stay there, but he left to a place called Arabia. So he talks about in Galatians 1, verses 15 through 17, how he didn't stop and settle down. He actually got up and went to Arabia. Arabia, at this point, you might be thinking Saudi Arabia, which is a really long trek away. It is a long ways away, but it's not that far. What we're talking about here is an area, a kingdom just east of Damascus, where Saul went and spent time with the Lord. It's amazing that we're not given a lot of awareness about what Saul was doing in Arabia. I would love to know what his journal entries were. You know, if the guy had a blog at that point, surely it'd be endless. Or the pictures that he would put up on Instagram of just spending time with Jesus here in Arabia. The scenery has to look amazing, but we're not given a lot of information. Here, Saul is encountering Jesus. And I, I think some of the things that we can get away from this or get grasp from this is that he was doing a couple of things. It'd be hard-pressed to imagine him not 
conversing and talking with other people about who Jesus was. And in fact, we'll see this a little bit later. He, he probably talked about Jesus in such a way that actually made the king of this area mad at him because of the things that he was testifying about. Maybe he was not only evangelizing or testifying about who Jesus was, maybe he was tracing some of the prophets of his own past and going where they were going or doing what they were doing. Remember that Saul was a a man who could totally grasp the Old Testament scriptures. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we have an Old Testament the, the big portion at the beginning of the Bible, and we also have a New Testament. Saul, at that time, would have had the Old Testament scriptures in front of him. So he would have known people like Moses and Elijah and these mighty prophets of the past who, when they were encountered by God, it happened at a certain spot. And that spot is actually in Arabia, where he went. This area and this mountain called Mount Sinai where God would extend his covenant to his prophets and where God would teach his people what they were needing to do happened in this place where Paul went to according to his own testimony and words. More than anything there, more than him possibly evangelizing the people in Arabia, more than possibly chasing the ghosts of the past like Elijah or Moses, more than anything we know that what Saul was doing was seeking the Lord in this private meditation where he was trying to learn from the Christ who just saved him. As he would talk about in his letters later on, he was defending himself as an apostle. And what apostles did, they spent time with the Lord and Jesus spent time with them teaching them and encouraging them and testifying to them that he was the Savior that the scriptures had talked about. And so Saul left for Arabia and spent time with the Lord in the same way that the other apostles did. Later on, he'll say that he was there for about three years. And that's as much time as the other apostles had spent with Jesus. So Saul was building this case for himself and telling people that he had spent time with the Lord. But more than anything, Saul spent time with the Lord in the midst of being changed, in the midst of being set apart, and in the midst of being separated from his sin and now brought into the holiness of God. Saul was spending time with God. What an amazing testimony to us. No matter how mighty you are, no matter how much you know, no matter how awesome you may be, Saul here spent years alone with the Lord and you and I can do the same whether it's a quiet time in the morning or listening to the Bible in the car or just gathering your family around the table and opening up the word and letting God speak to you we in the same way can be taught by Christ himself through his word in the same way that Saul an apostle of Jesus the one who God divinely and specifically spoke to in a visible way he was spending time with the Lord So we see that his impact was growing through not only continuing this passion that was on fire for the Lord, but also seeking time away with the Lord. But we also see that his passion and his impact was growing through learning from Christ. Oftentimes we want to be people who have an impact for the kingdom. And we think often about how much we can do for the Lord in specific places often forgetting that one of the things that we need to do most is learn from Christ. He talked about in Galatians 1.15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
Here, his impact was growing. This, this man, this new convert, his impact was growing by learning from Christ. The fuel in his fire wasn't his passion or his personality or the gifts that the Spirit might have given him, but the fuel in his fire was Christ himself. Something that never left him without energy. And like a lawyer who spends time and years and decades in the courtroom, this, has become, this becomes the lawyer that other people fear greatly. Here, Saul, one who knew the law better than anyone else, was now being retaught what the law actually says about who Christ was, and it gave him experience, which allowed him his impact to grow deeper and deeper. And so Saul, we see in our text, once converted last week in the text before, Saul comes back with a vengeance, but not with papers, like he was going to crucify people with, but now he comes with the scriptures where he proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And we see also that he not only grew in his faith and awareness of who Christ was, but that we can see that his impact grew by just the inspiration of God bestowing on him himself. You know, once this man was so grounded in the scriptures that no one could argue against him, but what God did once he saved Saul, when spending time with Saul, is he grounded him in a Christ-centered approach to the scriptures. You You can go anywhere in the scriptures and have it mean anything to you at any point in life. Even unbelievers use the scriptures to give them encouragement or to tell them what to do. We can see it from people in our own past who who might quietly or passively use the scripture to say whatever they want to say. But if that scripture isn't grounded with this backdrop of Christ's glory extending all over the universe, it just doesn't mean anything and it's certainly not helpful. So what Saul has is this inspiration from God that is given to him, but it's not only this holy experience but it's a Christ-centered theology and it comes back in full force where he was not just preaching the scriptures but he was preaching the scriptures with the climax of Jesus being the son of God an offensive thing to anyone around him that, that Jesus of Nazareth born of a woman born in a certain lineage is actually the forgiver of sins Jesus is whom all things belong to, a blasphemous thing to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. He's the incarnate form of God, the beginning, the creator, the sustainer of everything in the universe. And in fact, on top of all of that, he's presenting Jesus as Lord over all. Which is staggering when you think of this man, maybe days ago, was actually fighting against people for saying the same thing. And it causes his impact to grow deeper and deeper into the areas that he would go to because he was inspired by the Spirit revealing Jesus as the Son and giving power from God on high. He was preaching the Son of God. He was preaching the Christ Notice the article, the Christ, the Messiah, emphasizing Jesus' deity. Jesus of Nazareth was not a man, but Jesus of Nazareth was God. And Saul brought it with force. So we see that his impact grows through not only that, not only having a Christ-centered theology, not only having this holy zeal from on high, but we see his impact grow because people 
didn't like what they were seeing in Saul. People were actually angry whenever he would show up and were talking about these things. Look at verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed. It sounds pretty good so far. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, and when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So his confession when he came back from Arabia and now comes back to Damascus where he previously had just been converted by God himself, his confession to these new people have consequences. And it is going to cost him his life if he isn't careful and if he doesn't get out of there. Plots were arranged against him and even we would see by Paul's own account later as he's known Royalty at the time had it out for him. Not, not just people who he was preaching to, but the king of the area that he had gone to in Arabia had actually loosened the chains of this king's own soldiers so that they could help in this plot that was going to be carried out against Saul. It looks like all of the world is against him. Not because of who he was, but of what he was saying. He was saying that Jesus is the son of God and people around him hated him. And kings from afar hated him, and they were going to kill him. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They were acting like snakes around him, just waiting for the moment to strike. Yesterday, when Brooke and I were driving home in a random days of traffic, I started thinking about what I would do if I would encounter snakes. I don't know why. I think I, was talk- I think I was thinking about the movie True Grit, but I just thought for a moment, I don't know how I got there, which says a lot about me, but I thought if I was in a hole with snakes, what would I do? After crying, after grasping for the top of that hole, what would I do? And I was like, well, it's not that hard. Like, I'm kind of agile, so you just wait around, wait the snake out, and then when it goes to sleep, you just kind of crush it. But if you know anything about snakes, they don't, they don't sleep that much. And in fact, some snakes actually have eyes that they actually don't even close when they go to sleep. They have this film that goes over them so that they have a watchfulness all the time. And they're waiting on you so that they can snatch. Same way here, Paul or Saul, as we encounter him, is being hunted by people all around him. And they were waiting day and night. You know, this, this isn't a rundown in baseball where it's a moment in time that can be separated from the rest of the game. This is day and night people are waiting to kill him and destroy him. So his confession has consequences and people were angry about him. But that's not the only, those aren't the only reasons that we know that Saul has a tremendous impact at this moment. His impact is growing because not only are people mad at him, not only does he have this amazing ability to communicate the gospel, not only is his impact growing because of what Christ taught him, but also we see that his impact is growing because Saul himself, a new disciple, Saul himself actually has disciples at this point. Look at verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
Now, maybe these are people who Saul led to the Lord by his own confession of Jesus as the Son of God, or maybe these are people who God led to himself through other capacities, but either way, they were running around with Saul. And at that point, when they saw that, that their person who they were following, Paul would say later, follow me as I follow Christ, their person who they are following is they're following Christ, they're going to help him escape the city. They weren't going to let this man go with his work in vain, so they helped him escape through the wall at night. You might think, that's weird. Why weren't they just watching the wall if they were watching the gate? Well, a lot of people lived in the walls. Imagine a a city with a wall all the way around it, and we want to take advantage of all the real estate that we have. So they would build houses or rooms into this wall. And so through one of those rooms, Saul could escape and go outside the city. God's provision in this of caring for his disciple as to fulfill the testimony that he would have through Saul will not be stopped by the evilness of man. Another case where you and I can actually trust in the Lord's will because nothing will stop the Lord when his will is going to be carried out. It will even take a man going through a wall, which later on Saul would call an embarrassing moment in his own ministry. Once this mighty apostle testifier of the sun who came in with a vengeance to the city had to escape like a little man through a wall. He came as a conqueror and escaped in a hidden basket. And so he flees to Jerusalem. And so we see that Saul's impact grew incessantly in the verses 19 through 25. We see where his impact is growing and growing and growing. But now we're going to see not just his impact growing deeper, but his influence is going to grow broader. The acts of the risen Lord are being stretched out through Paul like never before. And so we see, starting in verse 26, that Saul's influence grew as well. He wasn't just a mighty man who was known in one area or in one place and in one time, but his influence is growing beyond the borders. And we see that his influence is growing because the other disciples knew about him. His reputation had once preceded him as a persecutor, but now his reputation is preceding him as a Christian. And the disciples, the actual followers of Jesus, knew of him even beyond Damascus. Now, maybe it got there because word travels after like a three-year period, because Saul said that he was in Damascus for three years before he went down to Jerusalem. So maybe it just follows him there. But they not only knew him as someone who confessed Christ, but it kind of made him nervous. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a true disciple. It had been years since Saul was in Jerusalem. And maybe people change. You know, think about you three years ago. What what were you like that's different than today? Hopefully a lot of good things, right? Hopefully you're, you're shedding off of the normal fleshly desires. But they weren't seeing Saul that way. They were afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. Maybe Saul to them was going to be their own Trojan horse. All part of the plan of his where he would now confess Jesus and and get in and then destroy God's army from the inside. He didn't even spend time with all the disciples, but they knew him and they had their doubts. He says in Galatians, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas or Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw one of the other apostles. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Saul here wasn't even going to meet with all these people on purpose, but he was 
maybe in large part, wanting to pay respect of Cephas. He wanted, wanting to meet this person, he was going to spend time with them, and he did. He spent about 15 days with them. And so we see here that Saul's influence is growing because the other disciples knew him, even though they were afraid of him. But we also see that his influence is growing, not just because they know him, but because his testimony was known to them or made known to him. So what happens here? He shows up in Jerusalem. They're nervous about him. And then it says in verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how Damascus, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, who we've encountered before in Acts, was known as a person of great encouragement. In fact, his name means the son of encouragement. He was known also as Joseph. But what Barnabas does is he basically takes Saul by the hand and introduces him to other disciples so that his testimony of what was about him was going out. But but notice what Barnabas doesn't do here. So Barnabas doesn't defend who he was. You know, he left a giant and he came back as a humble servant. You know, that would, that would preach to a lot of these people, but that's not what Barnabas talks about. And he, he also doesn't talk about what Saul had done. He doesn't say, hey, here's this mighty man who comes back, a humble servant. Look at all that he's done in Damascus. He's even been taught by the Lord uniquely in this area. Look at the amazing works. He even has disciples that helped him carry out. Barnabas doesn't go into that. He doesn't talk about him being a Christian preacher or what God has allowed him to do. But what Barnabas does here is he actually defends Saul based on God's testimony through Saul. When Barnabas talks about Saul, he actually talks about what God has done and who God is. He depends his own testimony on God's goodness. You know, we think of 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Saul was being introduced to these disciples not as a mighty man or as a person of great works, but Saul was being introduced to these people on what God had done for him. He was defended by God's testimony to and through him. His testimony, Saul's reputation, was about how God gave him a new heart. The echoes that Saul, now later known as Paul, would would transcend where he says, God made me alive together with him. He forgave all of my trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against me and him. And it has legal demands, but then he set me aside. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, Saul was known by what God had done to and through Saul. Saul was known by God redeeming him. Saul was known by God reconciling him to himself. What an amazing way to try to make friends, to, to try to fellowship with other people. You know, we often want to be around people who are like ourselves or maybe unlike ourselves. You know, we choose friends or in some ways family members by hobbies or we want to be like other people or we want them to have a unique influence on us. And here we're given this testimony on who Saul is, is about what God has done with them. 
You know, one of the amazing things I think, that one of the very unique things about this church in particular are the community groups that our church is divided in throughout all the areas actually has all kinds of people in them. You know, there's not the short community group and the tall community group or the employed community group or the young mother's community group. It's the community of Christ that gathers together. And it certainly looks hard at the beginning, but once you're inside of the body of Christ, you actually notice that, that those things You don't want to be around other people who are just like you. You want to be around other people who God has redeemed and God has made new. It's It's an amazing thing to be separated by God for the sake of holiness. It looks strange to the world. And here we have this example where Barnabas is actually defending his brother, his new brother in Christ, not because of how awesome Saul was or how mighty his preaching may be, but Barnabas was defending Saul based on the glory of Christ. And if that's who Christ sees Saul as, then the other disciples are going to partner with him. And so they accepted him. So we see that Saul's influence grows in this time, not just because his disciples or other disciples around him knew about what he had done and not just because his testimony was made known to them but also his influence grows we see because he was allowed in partnership with the other gospel or with the other disciples to preach freely in this area he was almost led it says look at verse 28 it says so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord you would imagine that these disciples or followers of Christ would be leading Saul to this area and that area, you need to go speak to these people. We've heard about these people. Go, go and preach your message there. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, maybe with some of these disciples or with other followers of Christ. But he was able to preach freely and it allowed his influence to grow. But not just his influence about himself, but the message of Jesus being the son of God to reach the end of this area. And he was there for 15 days. But another thing that shows us, almost as a mirror image of his time in Damascus, another way that we can see that Saul's testimony was growing and that his influence was growing is that even in Jerusalem, a place where he had known, a place, a place that knew him and would be able to listen to him in a unique way. Imagine the testimony of someone coming back three years after killing people and now testifying to the Lord. He there was persecuted as well. Also in Damascus, now in Jerusalem, verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. A a testimony of what it means to actually preach the gospel. It means you're going up against sin. And guess what sin doesn't like? The message of the gospel. This life-altering, life-giving, true hope message when faced with people who hate God, will also hate Saul and hated his message and hated him. And not just didn't like the guy. A lot of us don't like people, but they wanted to kill him. I don't think I've ever disliked anyone in any situation where the murderous thoughts come into my mind where I'm actually going to take physical action to get them. And not just in a split second, but actually a premeditated plot to kill someone because of how they were worshiping and who they were testifying about and what they believed in. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists or the Greek Jews and they were seeking to kill him. And in verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, 
They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So in the same way that he was able to preach in Damascus, he was also able to preach in Jerusalem. In the same way that he was persecuted in Damascus, he was also being persecuted now in Jerusalem. And they were seeking to kill him, but his brothers learned this. And defended him by escorting him out of town. Again, the gospels and God's will was not going to be stopped by the anger and the sin of man. The conflict in this tension is exactly the gospel's message. The Jews are saying, how dare you? The disciples are saying, who in the world are you? But the turning point shows the truthfulness of God's work. Once, once, what once was lost is now redeemed and set apart for the sake of growing the kingdom and greater holiness. The Jews said that he was no longer one of us, so let's kill him. And the disciples, once they saw him, they saw that he was one of us and let's defend him being separated out of this earthly kingdom. Now he's brought into a protection of Christ's church, the one church that he was hoping to eradicate from the earth. And understanding his commission, he is safer, they would think, maybe outside of this town and maybe in the town where he's actually from. And this is all part of God's plan, isn't it? Not just God's general plan of of reaching the ends of the earth and his gospel going out to the ends of the earth but also his particular plan when he declared that Saul was to be separated and used as a chosen vessel and then Saul testifies about his own journey later and he said I declared first to those in Damascus just like God wanted him to and then in Jerusalem just like God wanted him to and then throughout all of the region of Judea and then he was on his way to the Gentiles all with a message of wanting them and calling them to return and repent to the God of their youth. And so he was going to perform deeds in keeping of this call and keeping of this commission where he was going to call people to repent and call on Jesus, the Son of God, as their Lord. Later he would be followed. Years later he would be followed by Barnabas, the one who defended him. So... uh, Later on in this section, you might keep reading, and you'll notice that Saul somehow goes away. Where'd he go? He's up in Tarsus at this point, got to the seaport of Caesarea. We would think get on, got on a boat rather than walking and goes up to Tarsus where his ministry was going to take off. And bit by bit, he's going to where God has ultimately called him to preach the gospel to Rome, which will be like a flame to the ends of the earth at that time. We see that the acts of the risen Lord are being stretched out through Saul like never before. We see in this scripture that his, his acts are being stretched out through Saul's impact. This mighty man, now humbled as a servant, actually is going to have a deep, rich impact on everyone around him, keeping the tenacity, keeping the Christ-centered theology, keeping the message that was ultimately going to save people, Jesus as the Son of God. But also his influence is going to grow. This man was not just known in this area, but was becoming known more and more and was going to travel up to the ends of the earth to be known. We see here that the gospel is unstoppable at this point. One of the most encouraging things about the Christian faith is that we're actually on the side of someone who has already won. What do you do when you win something? You just keep celebrating the victory that you've accomplished. And here... Christ is celebrating the victory that he's accomplished for his people on the cross by spreading his message to people who desperately need him. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, for whatever reason you're here today, you just need to know that the gospel in necessity is for your life. Nothing else in the world matters at all in your life except your understanding of who Jesus is. And you need to know that Jesus is God. He's the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of your life whether you like it or not. And he imposes himself. In a situation like this, you're here in a church where you're hearing about Jesus being proclaimed. You're hearing about Jesus being sung about. You're hearing about people praying in Jesus' name. And so you you just have to take inventory, I think, on your own life as you go home in whatever way. And you just go, who is Jesus to me? Friend is a sinner. He needs to be your Lord because you have nothing in the way of his wrath being brought on you because of the consequences of your sin. But he's not only your Lord, he's your Savior. He can be the one who extends mercy to your life in a way that nothing else can. You know, it's not bonus points. It's the substitution of everything you thought was good. And he's the only one that's good. He's the giver of everything good. And so, friend, just accept him and call him in the same way that we see that Saul called upon the Lord to save his life. In the same way that we see hundreds of other people in the scriptures call upon the Lord to save them. You too can be saved. The Lord can save Saul, who's way worse than you. But in your sin, you are still separated. And and God is calling you to himself. Friend, respond. Respond to the message that others are testifying about, that Jesus is the Son of God. Call on him as your Savior. So we see Saul's impact grows as he as he's calling people to repentance and faith, we see that his influence is growing as he's calling people to repentance and faith. But all of this now, this this amazing turning point in the book of Acts, you'll see in verse 31, we actually see now thirdly in your outline, we see that God's peace grew as well. Saul's impact grows. Saul's influence grows. And the climax of all of that is God's peace grew. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see that God's peace grew because we see that there is peace in the church. The churches at this point, though talked about singularly in this context, What Luke is describing here are the multiple churches throughout all this area, these embassies of heaven, these announcement platforms of God's kingdom are growing in peace. Now, we can look at this historically and go, well, yeah, they were growing in peace. Like, historically, they had political peace at that time. You know, Christianity wasn't the only thing that people believed in at that moment. In fact, there was another cult-like group that was rising at the same time as the church growing. And it, the Jews didn't like it so much that they were willing to almost set aside the Christian church in order to stamp out this cult that believed in multiple gods and many gods. That was, that was equally as offensive as the Son of God being proclaimed. It was equally offensive to the Jews that these other people would believe in multiple gods? Are you kidding me? There's one God. They've been saying the Shema for a long time. So the Christian church in God's grace and providence and mercy was given almost political exile from the reign of terror. Also, we see there was peace in the church probably because Paul left. 
you know, this firebrand of personality who seems to bring havoc anywhere he goes, whether he's preaching this side or that side, these people, these people, everyone wanted to kill Paul. Well, Paul left, so there was peace in the midst of that. And also we see beyond all of that political peace or beyond personality peace, we see here that there is a peace that is given to the church, not just in that time, but in our time, and it's called contentment in the Lord's salvation. We're in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of conquest by evil and sin, there is a satisfaction and a true contentment that comes from a church that believes in Jesus's atoning death and resurrection. Paul would later describe this in Ephesians 6 where he talks about things like the breastplate of righteousness or the belt of truth. He, he talks about Christians having shoes on our feet, like putting the readiness that's given by the gospel of peace. How about you? I don't know about you, but anytime I get a new pair of shoes, I feel really confident in myself. Not just because of how good I look, but how I can literally walk on hot asphalt and it doesn't affect me at all. I can run on gravel. I can run in a field. I can dunk. With really tall shoes, I can dunk. (laughs) There's a confidence that God gives us when he gives us contentment. And that confidence is peace. You you might look at anyone in this church, those who have this sense of peace about them, who are calm in the midst of whatever storm it is, family, failings, work, torment, terror, they just have this peace within them. It's not because they're in this monotone, weird view of the world. It's because they are trusting in Christ as their only salvation. And if God can give them Jesus, then what else matters? Nothing can stop them at that point. And so the church was given peace, but not only given peace, but peace was advancing. God's peace grew and it was advancing. It was being built up inside the church. This idea of God sanctifying or making his people more holy and more true to his name and more glorious in his own presence. Jesus just doesn't rescue us, but he builds us up in a sanctifying work. Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews and God's church keeps growing in peace and in contentment like never before. You know, find me an old church and that will be a calm church because they know that the waves of life mean nothing to the one who is ultimately steering the ship. They're not being only built up, but they're also fearing the the Lord. And not just fearing the Lord, but this active sense. In verse 31, it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord. This active lifestyle of revering and having true reverence for who the Lord is. This active lifestyle of fighting sin and seeking the refuge and finding the refuge and having hope in the refuge of who Christ is. They were placing themselves in the view of the cross that allowed them to have this sense of contentment, but also this sense of fear that this almighty God loved them especially. Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who, have, who practice it have a good understanding. The fear of the Lord was their active lifestyle. What a a testimony that is for us. You know, what do you want to do today? I want to fear the Lord. None of us wake up like that, right? We should. We certainly should because of how these people live. We see the testimony of what it means to fear the Lord. It means you ultimately have peace inside the church. 
having right reverence and awe of a loving, almighty, and holy God. And what happens when these people have peace? What happens when these people are built up? What happens when these people fear the Lord? Their influence and their churches multiply. What had been taught about in the book of Acts up to this point is that people were adding, being added to the church of Christ. By thousands or scores they were being added to, but now it talks about the church being multiplied. Once added, now multiplied. And it was being multiplied by the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. The fanning flame of God himself was allowing the acts of the risen Lord being stretched out once through Saul, now through the church like never before. And so we see that Saul on his way to Damascus was once aiming to arrest Christians and was struck down blind but was given the gospel and redeemed and returned not only to Damascus and Jerusalem, but also to other cities around him. And his testimony was that Jesus is the Son of God. And the effect of Jesus' word being proclaimed in its truthfulness allows his people, allows God's people to rest and fear him as the Savior. Not, not fear anyone else, but fear him as their ultimate refuge and Savior. Jerusalem, where Saul went, cast him out, but he was not ever going to be stopped. The acts of the risen Lord had convicted and converted this man named Saul and was ultimately, as he was going, it was convicting and converting other people along the way. And so God's glory and God's love was being stretched out in the world like it had never been done before. The effect of his resurrection was now being felt by city to city. And may we experience the same peace that this church in this text does. May we experience the same peace that, that Paul was preaching about and talking about. May we experience the same peace by being led or being filled by the Spirit. Aiming for God to fill us. Not just, not just in the sense that we are full of the Spirit and that we have characteristics of godliness in all of us. But actually that He is continually filling us so that we are testifying about His goodness to the ends of the earth. That we would be filled in such a way that we proclaim the Son of God in the same way that Saul does. And that we would be filled in such a way that we trust the will of the Father. Basically, when we look at this text, we want to do the same thing that these people are doing. They're believing in God as their only hope. They're believing in God as their Savior. The Spirit is empowering this church. The Spirit is inspiring and empowering the message of the Word as it goes out. Saul here for us as we close this unique chapter on his life and we'll pick up on him later on in the books of Acts. But Saul's picture for us is one of a ignition that once started just doesn't stop but fill the earth with God's glory as it goes out. God's life or Saul's life to us is a testimony of what it means to actually not only be convicted by the word but, but changed by the power of the spirit. And we can have the same same thing happened with us. We actually believe and ask him to fill us. With God's grace overpowering sin in our lives, there can be peace too. Let's pray to him in this way. Father, we come to you this morning in great thankfulness that you 
change us in the same way that you change Saul. You take enemies of your throne and make us saints of your kingdom. We learn and love of testimonies like Saul where you resound as holy and glorious, abounding in steadfast love. And so we ask that we will be shaped and fashioned in the same way that Saul was. God, we ask that you will fill us with your spirit. We ask that you will fill this church with your love in such a way that people notice us and see something different, but more than that, they notice you and see you as holy and graceful and merciful. God, we say these things and ask you of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.